We're good. Hey, if you're just joining us and this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad to have you here with the worship of God. Uh, we are in this series called Creation and Fall. It's just a, a foundational series. What we're, what we're saying is, though the, though the Bible is very long and very varied, uh, it is ultimately one story. Uh, and, and every part of the Bible finds a place in one of four parts of, of, of the story, creation, fall, redemption, or uh, restoration. And, and so we're just saying that uh, this helps us shape our worldview. And everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a way of looking at the world, say, saying what's right and wrong. And we're saying that uh, in the culture that we live in, the time we live in, a lot of that is shifting and changing. Um, but this is not a time to to shrink away. This is not a time to just uh, mold with the culture. It's not a time to say uh, the autonomous self determines all right and wrong. We're saying God has, has made all things. And because God's made all things, the first week we looked at a few weeks ago, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's the most pregnant sentence in the history of the universe. That's the most profound sentence. And if that's true, we find out several things right away. That, that God created, therefore, He is the one that is in control. He's the one that has authority. Uh, and it also, if that's also true, that means that we're not the ones in control. We're not the ones in the authority. We're not, the story's not ultimately about us. And we don't like that. I like it to be about me. I like everyone to be about me. Come on, don't judge me. You, you do too, because that's how we are. We, we want the world to revolve around us, but from the very first words of Scripture, it should align us as a North Star saying, no, it is about God, His purposes, His glory, and His majesty. And so that's what we looked at in week one. Last week we saw God is a master artist. He, he speaks and quasars come into existence. He speaks and the universe finds its meaning. He speaks and, and in, in the little tiny corner uh, subdivision of the universe, a little speck of dirt, he makes a, a, a thing called earth and he fashions mountains and oceans and beasts of the field. And, and he reveals it to us in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter as a poem. So that says something about God, that he is an artist, he loves art, and we said we should enjoy his artwork. We should enjoy the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and, and, and all those things. But we also said that we realize that it's finite. It's not infinite. The, the, the creation is not worthy of our praise because only the infinite is worthy of our praise. And so we can give it all away. We can sacrifice. We can say, hey, we have forever to enjoy this. And so we can give our lives in the cause of the poor and the oppressed and, and, and not be slaves to just trying to make the most of the moment right now. We said it's also important to God, the creation. So important to Him, and not only because He's the artist of it, but so important to Him that He left heaven in glory and took on a second nature in the person of the Son and, and took on human nature and entered into our world to rescue and redeem our world. And as His people, the same passion for creation should be in us. And today we're going to look at something else. We looked at the first five and a half days of creation, but... At the end of the sixth day, we see his crown jewel of creation. And in it, this sets so much apart. This is not a, a secondary doctrine. This idea that we're going to look at that, that, that you and I and everyone else who's ever been born is created in the image of God. It means so much for us that if we were to wrap our lives around it, man, it would shatter uh, this world. It, it, 
Well, let me, let me just read the scripture, pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump in. So we're in Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there. We'll put, put it on the screen for you today. If you don't, uh, if you have a smartphone, you can go to esv.org and follow me along with that. I should be on the very first page of your Bible. As I always say, if it's not, come talk to me later, and we'll talk about what Bible you're using. Um, but Genesis chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 26. And as I read, I'd ask you to just listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So so far, just pause real quick before I get into that. Uh, There's been this refrain, God said, and and it was good. He saw it was good. He said... and he made it, and it was good. Now he has this conversation in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they begin to talk, and now they plan their crown jewel of creation, and we continue. It says, then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let me pray for us once again, just as before we d- dig into this passage. God, we, we come before you once again needing to hear from your spirit and not from me. And so I pray, Lord, that you would remove me from the way, or that you would guard my lips and my mouth from error, error, and that you would say that which would bring much glory to you, that truth would be uh, presented, grace would be presented, and all that you are in this passage would be presented. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The doctrine of the Imago Dei. I don't have my clicker on me. I want to. Oh, you have it. Thank you. Appreciate it. The doctrine of the Imago Dei, or the image of God. Imago Dei is Latin for image of God, and so that's what theologians refer to it as. It is that God has impressed upon each person His image, and we'll talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean, but uh, again, this is a central issue that falls all throughout Scripture uh, from creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is not a, a peripheral issue. This is a central issue. This is an issue that is crucial for, for the survival of humanity because God created us to, to live in such a way to elevate and value the Imago Dei. Where the Imago Dei is elevated and valued, people find their purpose and meaning, marriages thrive and flourish, families flourish, cities flourish, civilizations flourish, and the opposite is also true. Where the Imago Dei is not respected and is trampled upon, 
We see chaos, destruction, broken down families, broken down individuals, and broken down civilizations. For the last 1,700 years, the doctrine of the Imago Dei has been uh, lifted up as a a primary uh, motivator for civilization, at least in the West. But it wasn't always the case. Uh, as we'll see in this, this passage, it, uh, Christianity uh, and, and the doctrine of the Imago Dei was not always just assumed as it has been assumed and now is being uh, cast off in our culture, but, but uh, there was a time when Christianity uh, was on the margins. And, and let me just say that the Christianity in the margins of society does very, very well, by the way. You, all you need to do is look at the past 50 years in China and see the church in China explode with the glory of God and saints coming into the church. But, but before that, all you needed to do was look at the first 400 years of our history. Christians were not just automatically welcomed into culture. They went into a pagan Greco-Roman culture that hated the ideas of, of Christianity, hated all the, the things that Christians said, but the Christians persevered. Uh, they were mocked, they were, bur- they were persecuted, they were beaten, they were abandoned, they were thrown to lions, they were thrown to gladiators, they were, they, they were absolutely ridiculed. You know, the very first image of, uh, the very first graphical image we have to depict Jesus on the cross is a mockery of Christianity. It was found in a cave in 1856 in the hills outside of Rome. Uh, I got a picture of it here, uh, let me see here. I think that's my... Okay, so you can't quite see it here. I'll, I'll pull it out here. Okay. So some, some kid went up into the hills of Rome, and, and, and the, the cultural air that the Romans were breathing were the, 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 the biggest idiots in this town are the Christians. I mean, they're so repressive in their sexual morals. They're so repressive in their, their morality that they reject all of our gods. They say there's only one God, that they're immoral. They have these, these love feasts, they call them, and they eat the body of their, their leader, and they drink the blood of their leader. They're, 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 they're wicked people, and, and so probably some teenager went up into the hills and, and he was carving about this thing and it says Alex, well we'll just say Alex, Alex, Alex Menos Sibete worships Theon, God. So Alex worships his God. See his God is on a cross. It's a jackass God. That's, what, that's how they depicted Jesus because he was a fool. You're going to worship the, the, the guy that got crucified. Do you know who gets crucified? The worst people, the biggest the, the murderers, the thieves, uh, Christians are fools. And this was the cultural heir uh, of Western civilization for the first 400 years after Christianity. But, but we'll see. It was this doctrine of the Imago Dei that would eventually overturn Western civilization, eventually win the day. It, it was the Christian's Uh, absolute commitment that every person, regardless of race, regardless of economics, regardless of status, they had meaning and value. And so the Christians lived like that. So where there was, where there was uh, infanticide and abortion, uh, uh, Christians entered into that space. Abortion was prevalent in the first century, by the way, and so was infanticide. Oh, you had a girl, just leave her on the side of the road. And the Christians would come and say, along and say, that girl is created in God's image, and they would adopt her, and, they, and she'd become a, the, part of the family of God. The Christians are the ones who said uh, uh, God cares about the poor and the oppressed, 
And when the plagues and the famines hit, the Christians gave up their food. When the plagues hit the city, the Christians moved into the, moved into the city to care for the sick and the dying. And they died themselves too. But you know what? They also got some immunities along the way. And they survived after a while. It was the Christians surviving the plagues because of their love for God and their love for people. It was this doctrine that fueled them. And that's why it's important. It's important for us in a culture that Christians are increasingly marginalized to not say, oh, woe is us. We say, great, we thrive in the margins. We have a better story to tell. We have, we have the ultimate story to tell, and that will win the day. And so we come to this story. In a world that says, you are your own God, you determine your own right and wrong, we have a better story. We have a better uh, meaning to life. And so I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about the meaning of the Imago Dei. I'm going to talk about the importance of the Imago Dei. And then I'll, I'll conclude with the implications, which are massive, of the Imago Dei. And so uh, when we look at this passage and we see the Imago Dei, scholars and, and theologians for, for millennia have tried to determine what does it mean that you and I are created in the image of God? And so you look in it and it says something about having dominion, having work, and having calling. And that's true, but that's only part of the story. We're going to actually talk about that next week. Uh, what, what, what that means as image bearers to have a, a calling and have work. Uh, it means something about our, 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 our maleness and our femaleness. Uh, that has something to do with the Imago Dei. We'll, we'll deal with that in two weeks. But today we're just going to look at a 30,000 foot view and begin to enter in a different narrative into the story. Our world is confused. Every day you can turn on the news or, or pull up some uh, some. Uh, news feed on your Facebook thing and, and just see like there, it's, it's a time of mass confusion that no civilization in the history of the world has faced like we've faced in the last 10 years. Here's an example. You want to sign up for Facebook today? Go ahead. It'll ask you your name. It'll ask you your age. And then it'll ask you, are you male or female or 70 other qualifiers? No one 10 years before in the history of humanity would have ever wrestled with that question. But our culture is wrestling with that question. Are there, are there 72 different genders? And, and, and is, is, that, is that where we're at? Well, well, this, this passage would say, actually, God speaks into that. And, and what he speaks into that is good and clarifying and helpful. But the Imago Dei, some people say, well, it, it obviously doesn't mean the image of God. We know that. We know God is spirit. We know that there's not some six foot two dude with a long white beard in heaven somewhere and, and we're made in his image. We know that from scripture. So it, it must mean something else. It must mean that we have the communicable attributes. So we have the ability to, to love and to reason and to, uh, to, to have courage and bravery and all, all these things that the other parts of creation don't have. And I say that's part of it, but that's not all of it because even those that don't have those capacities, uh, uh, mentally handicapped, uh, the, the unborn, the, the infants, the old and senile, even if they lose those capacities, they still have the inerrant worth of their maker in them as the Imago Dei. So it can't just be capacities. It's got to be something more. I want to suggest it's, it's, it's two things. Two things that we're going to look at is this, that we are called to be representations and, I think I have that up here, representations and reflections. Let me talk about representations first of all. 
You see this. In the ancient Near East, when, some, when a, a ruler would conquer a territory, he would set up icons or statues that represent himself so that the, the conquered territory or the people would say, uh, even though the ruler, even though Caesar's not here, here's an image of Caesar, and that reminds me uh, of who's the sovereign one, who's in control, who's in charge. And, and so uh, the first thing we see in this passage is that, that human beings, all human beings, are, are meant to be representations. We are the vice of the universe. We, we rep- maybe you only know that from Star Wars, but that means we represent uh, God's authority. Uh, we don't have the authority. We don't have the sovereignty. But as his, his image bearers, as his icons, we represent to the rest of creation who is in control, who's in charge. And the secondly, reflection. We aren't God, but we, like a mirror, should reflect God so, so that when people see us, they should see something of God. And, and it, I, I read this quote this week that made me think of this. It says this, a guy named Peter Adams, he, he said this, you remind me of someone I know. He says, mm, now I know who it is. That's right. You remind me of God. That's what we're created for, as image bearers of God. But the, the problem, of course, is that, that, that the image has been veiled. It's been darkened by sin. And so we have a, a difficult time seeing it in ourselves, and therefore we have an even more difficult time seeing it in others, and we trample on the image of God, and it's an offense to their maker when we do that. So let's talk about the importance of the Imago Dei. I'd say the very first thing about the importance of the Imago Dei, especially in our day, is this idea of our self-image. How how do we determine uh, our value and our worth? How do you know that you have inherent value, worth, and dignity? And every human being has that. It's the doctrine of the image of God. We have unique value as image bearers that nothing else in creation has. So in my family, in my household, here's a little rundown. It's me, my wife, four daughters, two dogs who are also females, and that's our household, okay? And so, um, that, you know, let's just pray for me on that. But, um, but nonetheless, so we got my wife, me, uh, Rebecca, Zoe, Hannah, and Abby, uh, I did that out of order. Sorry, guys. Uh, but uh, and then we've got Piper. She's six month, six years old. Uh, chocolate Lab. And then we got about a six month old. Six months is that right? It came from them. Uh, 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 yellow Lab named Mila. Now, let me just show you how we know innately value. Now we love, we love everybody. We love our dogs. We love our, our children. We love. I love my wife. All those things. There's no question about that. But say a flood came to our town, or say my house was on fire. And in that moment, I, I, there was one or two that I, I couldn't save in that moment uh, out of my wife, my four daughters, and my two dogs. I mean, who am I leaving behind in that moment, right? It's not a trick question. Okay, yeah. Like you're, not, you're torn between, you know, is it Mila or Piper? Uh, I'm going with Piper because I got six years of history with her. And I'm sorry, Mila's She's, she's young, you know, it's okay. But uh, there's some history there. But there was never a question. No one said, Jennifer, she's gone. No, like, why not? She cost me more money than the dogs. Or no one was like, you know, Zoe. Yeah, you know, obviously, uh, you know, if it was a matter of what, who made my life easier, I'm keeping Piper. Like, she's obedient. 
Like, she, she's there for me. Like, if it was just that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love Piper. It doesn't mean we don't love Mila. And, and part of the image of God we see in this passage is that, that, that we care for God's creation. We love the animals and we care for them. Uh, any cruelty to animals is a, is a twisting of the image of God because we've been commissioned to care for them. But in that moment, if I walk into my burning house and my, one of my kids or my wife is on one side and my dog's on the other side and I've only got one moment... If there's any hesitation in me in that moment, something's twisted in that moment. As a matter of fact, even if I come in and it's a stranger, or, or even if it's my worst enemy created in God's image, in that moment, if I'm not saving him and, and leaving my dogs behind, I'm not understanding the, the, the meaning and value of that person, even if I don't like that person, because they, have, they bear the impress of their maker. And this is huge for us. And, and, and so we can say to every, everyone unapologetically, you have dignity, you have worth, you have value. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. You still have it because of the image of God. Augustine put it this way. He said, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains, at the huge waves of the seas, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars. So Augustine is saying everything we said last week, the creation is amazing. The mountains are amazing. The ocean is amazing. God's creation is amazing. And we'll travel long distance just to wonder at it. But then listen to what Augustine says, at the circular motion of the stars. And yet they pass by themselves without wondering. You see what he's saying? We'll go out of our way to, to enjoy the ocean. We'll go out of our way to enjoy the mountain. And, and along the way, we'll pass people that, that we, we don't like. We, we pass people that we belittle. We pass people made in the image of God. And Augustine says, this is a travesty that we don't see people as the ultimate jewel of God's creation. And so we, we find our value in, in our self-image in that. Secondly, uh, we find the foundation for human rights comes from the Imago Dei. So Tim Keller talks about in New York City, he's a pastor out there, he talked about how one of his uh, parishioners is a uh, medical student. And in medical school, the student was going around doing rounds with the doctor, with the other students, and, and the, the patient came up and she had struggled with depression and they tried all so, sorts of different drugs and they kind of ran out of drugs to give her. And, and so they kind of were, were discussing this with the doctor. What should we do? And, and the student, who's a, a Christian, said, well, you know, maybe we could just talk. Maybe we don't have to give her any more drugs. Maybe we could just talk to her and remind her that she has dignity, value and worth because she's a human being. And the doctor said, where do you get that from? And the other students are like, are you serious? He's like, no, we're scientists here. You, you can't say that she has dignity, value, and worth. Science doesn't say that. Science says that, 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 that she's maybe more complex, but, it, but we can't just say she has dignity, value, and worth. Don't push your quasi-religious views on this woman. And, and everyone's just kind of shocked. But you know what? He's right. There, there is no basis in, in, in a strictly secular scientific mindset to say that human beings have any more worth, value, and dignity than anything else in creation. And so let me quote a couple atheists along those lines. See, now, now modern, a lot of atheists, 
they want their cake and eat it too. So, so they, they, they don't want a God who has authority and control and dominion over their lives, who makes demand on, on their lives. But at the same time, they want to borrow the ethical capital of Christianity and say, people have worth, they have value, they have dignity, they want to have it both ways. But honest atheists know that's not possible. Listen to Bertrand Russell, atheist philosopher. He says this, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. He's just saying, there's no scientific basis to give man any dignity or worth. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he was a Supreme Court ch- uh, Chief Justice uh, in, the, in the early part of the last century, he said this, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Scientifically, we are more complex, but significance? You know nature kills us off like the rest, like everyone else. And again, this is where I would say, in this culture, in this confusion, we have a better narrative. We have a a foundation that is rock solid to say, no, civilization and humanity does have worth. So where does this idea come from? Well, some that want to, they don't want to give any credit to Christianity. They'll just say, well, it's a Western civilization idea. Say, really? Prior to Christianity, did you know what the world was like there? You know what Aristotle said? Aristotle said some races were born to be slaves. They're too emotional. Their, their best hope is to be a slave. That, that's how they were created. That, that's Aristotle. That's Western thought. You get the same thing from Socrates and from Plato. And that's Western thought. And, and this happened uh, for, for hundreds of years until the, the Christian idea won the day, the Imago Day. Let me, uh, it, it came through the church. Let me quote Nietzsche again. Nietzsche's most famous sentence is, God is dead. German philosopher Nietzsche bought into what's called nihilism. Nietzsche believed that there would raise up the Ubermensch, the Superman. So a super race of human beings, and this is where Hitler got a lot of his ideas, by the way, would raise up and dominate the world. And, and, and uh, Nietzsche had no problem with that. In fact, he said, let's get, let's get that going on. Uh, he said, but there's a problem, and the problem is this Christian worldview. Listen to what he says. Another Christian concept, no less crazy, is the concept of equality of souls before God. He says it's crazy, and it's a hindrance to the ubermensch rising up. He says, this concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. I mean, Nietzsche's just honest. He's like, man, if it wasn't for Christianity, we could just eliminate all the weak races. But Christianity says they're all equal before God. It's crazy, is what he says. Let me quote another atheist, just because I'm, I'm loving quoting atheists today, apparently. Uh, <laughs> Derrida, French philosopher. He said this. He's an existentialist. He says this, The concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept. And I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage, the Abrahamic heritage, the biblical heritage. Now, if you're an atheist, how how awful do you have to feel to write that sentence? Do you gag a little bit? Does that come up like, man, I I hate that. I hate the human rights. That comes from Christians. The whole idea of humanity having rights is a Christian idea. It came through the church. It was the church who won the day. And it's the church living this doctrine out that will continue to win the day. Let's look at some of the implications. There there are many 
And, and I'm only, each one of these could be a sermon in the, of themselves, uh, but I will just give you the highlights. The first implication is love of God and love of people. So, so we have to raise up or, or elevate the doctrine of the Imago Dei because of our love of God and love of people. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? He said, Matthew 22, 37, love the Lord your God with all your strength, soul, heart, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the whole law of God. So what is he saying? Is he saying two different things? I don't think so. I think he's saying one thing. I don't know anyone that loves God really, really well and just kind of trashes people the whole time. It's not possible. I don't know anyone that truly loves and values the image of God in people and has no love for God. It's one thing. And so our love of God and love of people. James says it's a tragedy, James 3.9, that uh, men bless God uh, with their tongue and with the same tongue they curse people made in His likeness. He says it's a disconnect. It's a disconnect to treat image bearers with anything less than the respect and dignity that they deserve because it's an offense to their maker. There are no ordinary people. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis, not an atheist. Uh, was an atheist, but not an atheist anymore. Uh, he says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life to us is, is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He's talking about heaven and hell there. He says, this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, <coughs> and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between two people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. So, first implication is that we, we ask God to help us see the image of God in others, to see the image of God in our spouse, in, in our children, in our neighbors, in the cashier at McDonald's. She's an image bearer. He's an image bearer. And she's worthy, and he's worthy of our respect. Well, the next thing that is an implication out of this, of the Imago Dei, is abortion and infanticide. Again, Christians entering in the Greco world, abortion was prevalent, infanticide was prevalent, and from the very beginning, Christians had this idea that all people are created in God's image. They bear the impress of their maker, and so they had to be for, uh, for the life of the baby. They had to be. It, it, you just have to be if you believe in the image of God. And even scientifically, the argument is different than it was in 1972, Roe versus Wade. Scientifically now, we have sonograms and 3D sonograms, and you can see there's an image bearer in there. And so it's no longer a debate. There's no question, is, is this a person in process? So the argument has had to change. The argument is no longer, well, it's not a baby, it's a fetus, which, by the way, is Latin for baby. Uh, it's, it's not a baby, it's changed. They say, yes, it's a baby, but the life of the mother, regardless of whether her life is in, at stake or not, uh, that is, and her choices are, are more important than the babies. They're elevating her uh, choice over the Imago Dei, and, and Christians said, no, this, this can't be. This is an offense to a holy God. 
This is, this is demonic and it is murder. But let me just say this. There are, there's only one kind of person in this room today. Sinners in need of God's grace. So if we hold the doctrine of the Imago Dei, we will fight for the rights of the unborn and we will come alongside the women and the men that help them and say there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy at the foot of cross. You have value, you have dignity, you bear the image of your maker. There's forgiveness in that. And we, we believe the best way to find that is to know where you're at so that we can point you to Jesus. So abortion and infanticide. The, the doctrine of the Imago Dei should shape how we think about and, and how we respond to racism and ra- racial reconciliation. This is a hot topic in our culture today. Let me just show a picture real quick. Anyone know who that is? Okay. So every one of my black friends knows who that is. It's Emmett Till. Emmett Till was 14 years old when he left his family to visit other relatives in Mississippi. He left Chicago, went down to Mississippi, 1955, went into a store, apparently didn't understand the the differences uh, between Chicago and Mississippi in the 1950s, went in and had the audacity to talk to the married white woman, 21-year-old woman at the desk and and, uh, get his sandwich and go on. Well, some people saw him talking to her, and, and they told her husband, and they told another guy. Well, they went and kidnapped him, beat him mercilessly, dragged him, and lynched him. They were acquitted, found not guilty of doing it. The question, the defense was, well, we don't know if that was really Emmett Till. We don't know if that was him or not. 1956, after the trial, they admitted to doing it, but because of double jeopardy, they couldn't be tried again. In 2004, they exhumed Emmett Till's body just to prove, yeah, this DNA is Emmett Till's DNA, and yes, it did. But again, every one of my black friends knows this story. In fact, my daughter was over at, at, at one of her friend's house only a few weeks ago, and, and this came up, and they, they taught her about it. So, that became a symbol for them. They, they brought the body back to Chicago. His mother insisted that it be an open casket, casket with his bloated body. Tens of thousands of people came and saw, and they said, this is an image bearer. This matters to God, and it should matter to us. I have two friends, Brandon Washington, and um, now I'm skipping his name. No, no, not Kita, but um, thank you, though. I appreciate you helping me out. Uh, Jonathan Dickerson, who was part of our gospel community, both of them, large black men, both of them pulled over for no reason. Both of them had guns drawn on them and thrown on the sidewalk. One of them with their children watching. Uh, one, I remember Jonathan telling me through tears of the time that happened to him when he was driving near Heritage High School, a neighborhood I grew up near, a white neighborhood, pulled over, dragged from the car, guns drawn. He says, that's not uncommon, Mark. This matters to God. Now, now don't, don't get me wrong. I, I 
think the world of the police. I think the world, I, I can't imagine what they go through. I, I, I am a person, a, a white person who, who is my natural default is trust the system, trust the system, trust the system. And my black friends are saying, have you seen the system? Have you seen how it affects us? We can't trust the system all the time, Mark. And so my best that I can do to them is say, I'm sorry, I, I can listen to you. I don't know what that means, but it has to do with the Imago Dei. So the, second, the next thing would be uh, the doctrine, doctrine of the Imago Dei should, should deal with how we deal with the poor and the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the refugees, the immigrants. Throughout the, the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, on repeat is this command to God's people, care for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Care for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Now, I'm not talking politics here. In fact, I, I'm, it, it, essentially I've offended uh, both Republicans and Democrats at this point, uh, but, but I'm talking about the image of God, and I'm saying that regardless of your politics, your first response is there are image bearers there, and, and my first response should be compassion and mercy. Now, let's draw up some laws and some rules and let's enforce all those. All that's fine, but that has to be after we recognize they bear the image of God. And so we care for widows and orphans. They're image bearers. We care for them. Slavery and human trafficking. You know, uh, UNICEF estimates there's 27 million slaves in the world today. Today that bear God's image. They, they are trafficked through Cambodia, Thailand, India, Nepal, America, Highlands Ranch. Yeah, my wife wrote a grant for, for that last year talking about the human trafficking that's going on in our neighborhood. They, they work in rice mills and brick kilns and uh, they are exploited, abused, and they matter to God. Because they bear His image, and they should matter to God's people. 1857, Dred Scott versus Sanford. Dred Scott, uh, an African-American man, was, was arguing that he should be recognized as an American citizen and be recognized uh, as someone who can vote. Uh, on a 7-2 vote, the Supreme Court in 1857 said, no, you, you don't get to vote. Uh, people of African descent don't get to vote. You're not... You're not uh, you're not American citizens. Furthermore, they protected the right of Southern slave owners based on the Fifth Amendment, and they said uh, because they're property, they don't have their own rights. And so uh, seven to two at the time, the Supreme Court said, that's right. But two of them said no. And this, the dissenting opinion by Supreme Court Justice John McLean, listen to his argument for no. He says this, a slave is not mere chattel. He bears the impress of his maker and he is destined to an endless existence. You hear the argument? It's the Imago Dei. It's the Imago Dei. It's the image of God. That's why we have to treat them with full dignity and respect. The image of God should shape how we think about gender equality. Christianity did not enter into a world of, of gender equality. It was Jesus who lifted up women. Jesus who was scandalous in the way that he treated women. Now, we'll see there, there are different roles and different callings for husbands and wives and in the church, but, but there is a, uh, an equality of worth, dignity, and value. Male and female, he created them in his image. So if you're female, you fully bear the image of God. If you're male, you fully bear the image of God, and therefore you have dignity and worth. And so so this makes us think about uh, how we should oppose gender side. Let me read a quote from an uh, article I read this week. It said, every year millions of daughters are strangled, suffocated, drowned, 
lethally neglected or aborted simply because her family wanted a boy and not a girl. This is gendercide. This is wicked. This is demonic. And this should matter to us. Gendercide. It happens in America, by the way, too. Do your ultrasound. You're not having a boy. Well, it's your choice to crush that image bearer. And it's awful. It should make us shape the way we think about pornography and exploitation. We are consuming for our own pleasure image bearers and their depravity and their brokenness and their heartache. And it's wicked. If you saw them as image bearers and you saw yourself as an image bearer, you would not have that desire. But we we do because we have sin in us. It should think, finally, I'll, I'll just close with this. It should shape how we think about church planning and world missions. The vast majority of the people outside of these walls do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, do not know who made them, do not know that they were made with dignity and purpose. They breathe the culture, cultural air that says they have dignity and purpose in the classroom and in the therapist, and then they go outside and they say, you have, you're just an accident. You're just here by, by primordial ooze, and they're confused, but we have the answer. That's why we believe in church planting. We want to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches that make disciples who make disciples who make disciples because we want to bring people in right relationship with their Creator. The same is true about world missions. World missions is an Imago Day issue. There are people created in the image of God who will not hear the name of Jesus, who have no access to the Bible, and we need to go. We need to plant churches. We need to share the gospel. We need to tell them that they have dignity, value, and worth. They were made in the image of God. And so we go. We give away our lives. We give away our money. We give away our time to do just that. This is an Imago Day issue. But the problem is we have failed to represent and reflect God's image in the world. Sin has darkened that. We'll get to that in a few weeks, but we we failed in our representation and our reflection. So where's the hope? Well, of course, the hope is in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate, the the preeminent, the perfect, exact representation and reflection of God. This is repeated throughout the New Testament. The ultimate meaning of what it means to be created in the image of God is revealed to us in Christ. So we look to Jesus. We, we turn and reflect Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power of His word. Jesus said, John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is our model. He is our hope. He is our example. He is doing in us what we couldn't do in our own. He is forming Christ in the believer. Romans 8, 29 says, uh, those he predestined, he also predestined to form Christ in and make, make Christ come to the focus. So we turn to Jesus. He shows us perfect love. He shows us what, who God is and how we should love. More than that, he understands what it means to be an image bearer as he took on that additional nature. He understands what it means to have the image of God trampled upon. He was betrayed. He was rejected. He was born in absolute poverty. He was a refugee for the first few years of his life. He was an immigrant as he came back into the land. 
He was a, a victim of attempted infanticide by Herod. He faced injustice. He was arrested, beaten, mocked in front of a mockery of a trial. He was lynched. He had his image torn so that we could have our image restored. And for that, we should respond with gratitude, with worship, and with praise. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to this table. God, we thank you for the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Lord, every person here in this room right now has far more significance, value, and worth than any of us could ever fathom or imagine. But Lord, I pray that you'd remove the veil, remove the veil of sin. Lord, let us see the image of God in ourselves so that we can see it in, our, in each other. Lord, may this change us. May this change the way we think and act in the world to the end that Jesus is glorified and reflected rightly in the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.